This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 22. We're recording on Friday, October 4th. I'm Rebecca Shinsky, and I'm here with Jeff O'Neill, and we are the editors of BookRiot.com. Jeff, how are you? It's our birthday. It is our birthday. Well, not well, our birthday. Technically, not yesterday. Not yours and mine. No. Uh, Book Riot's birthday. Two turned- years young. Two years. And I mean, two years young, but also... So it feels like we've been doing this for a while now. Well, it's like internet years are like dog years. One right, internet year is like 28 internet right. years. So really, right. we're 56. We're buying a red Corvette. And, uh, you know, we're shooting the square on Friday nights. Um, I, you want some stats? Just yeah. I, We got to toot oh. our own horn a little bit. I got Dude, my little you know, horn right here. You know I love me some stats. Okay. Let's kick it off. We won't bore people too much, but just, just enough uh, to make it interesting. So we the, the site launched October 3rd, 2011. And since then... Nine million people have visited the site. Holy moly. Wow, that's a lot of people. That is a lot. Not bad for books, huh? I will take that. Yeah, Not this bad. is this these two years have done a lot to reassure me about young people and reading. I know. That that's that's encouraging. Uh as of right this moment, this will change in eighteen minutes when the next post goes up. There have been four thousand six hundred and ninety one posts. <laughs> uh <laughs> and that's in from at least 44 regular contributors. People have mm-hmm. written for the site regularly. That does not count outside contributors, which I did not have six hours to go through every single community post. Oh, no. But we count. did some awesome outside contributors, but several, too. Several, several people that have helped us out. Margaret Atwood has written for and with us. Uh, we've we've kick-started two books, one of which is in production right now. Start here, Volume 2. So there's mm-hmm. two books. This is show number 22. We're yep. 22 shows in. Uh, what other stats is it? Anything else interest you? That's that's pretty. Those are the, those are the top line numbers. Yeah, those are the big vital statistics. Yeah. Uh, the most popular post of all time, by far, sixteen things Calvin Hobbes said better than anybody else by our very own Ed McCracken with over one million page views. Whoa, that's a lot of Calvin Hobbes. That's a lot of Calvin. I mean, Hobbes. every day I... there's at least a few hundred people that come to that thing from Google and all kinds of places that link to it so that and, that one that keeps on giving yeah and i think ed himself would would also admit that none of us expected that post no, to none, do none that of us did. it was like oh we have this nice sweet post with yeah. some calvin and hobbs quotes and everybody likes calvin and hobbs and that'll be fun but uh the internet is such a surprise it is. consistently so all of you who've been reading the site for however long you've been reading it uh thank you so much and we're gonna keep doing what we're doing yeah and Back. uh here's to here's to 56 more internet years, so two more years at least at of, least, uh, of this. All right. <laughs> I'm going to be so internet ancient by then. I, I, I I'm know. already like rolling towards we're like, internet We're like ancient. Yodas of book blogging. Uh, <laughs> let's do our first sponsor. Is everyone hanging out without me? And other concerns by Mindy Kaling. It's a, it's an M, it's a memoir that's funny but also true about her many identities. As the child of immigrant professionals... Uh, her early days uh, in New York trying to make it big, um, sleeping on each other's sofas, aspiring actress and writer, all the way through into the success of The Office. And now she's got her own show. It's in the second season and doing really well. Uh, it's friendship, dating, 
how to be kind of a real woman, you know, dressing a non-model's body in Hollywood um, and doing all the thing that, in, that entails there. If you like bossy pants, this is one thing they say is this is bossy pants for millennials. So she's not as old as Tina Fey. She is not as established, but she's definitely on that trajectory, wouldn't you say? Like she oh, seems like sure. very much on that that line. So if you like bossy pants, you like fun, smart, uh, successful women talking honestly and openly and humorously about their lives, I, you've got to do this one. You totally yeah, do. I mean, and this is this is it. If you're if you're a woman and you've ever had to like stuff yourself into a pair of Spanx for a special event, <laughs> you want to read Mindy Kaling's thoughts about those. I promise. Michelle just uh, finished Bossy Pants and she loved it. And I'm going to get her to listen to this on audio. Uh, it's ah. going to have. I know she's listening right now, so she. This is her uh, pitch. She always says she always wants to listen to every audiobook we talk about. So we'll have to we'll have to get some we'll have to. Yeah, find some I think good picks for her. This would be a good. I have a good uh, audiobook recommendation uh, for when we do. New okay, books yeah. Hold on. Later hold on. Show, hold so on. Let's we'll, hold on to that. We'll so, so that keep is you on the edge of your seat. <laughs> is everyone hanging out with without me by Mindy Kaling? Thanks so much for sponsoring the show. Check that one out wherever books are sold. Okay, so we're going to move up our author trivia section to the first spot today. Uh, sadly, we're going to use it to commemorate Tom Clancy, who died this week. At the age of 66, uh, of an undisclosed short mm. illness is all we know yeah. about it. Um, passed away at Johns Hopkins Medical Center in uh, Baltimore, Maryland, um, where I, I've, got, I've got a few tidbits for you. But I want to tell you the story of how he became famous. Because it's hard to remember now in our day of E.L. James and Dan Brown that he was, in the late 80s, the Dan Brown of the day, right? Like, oh, for sure. Hunt for Red October, his first novel, was the... Da Vinci Code of military thrillers. No and one much had really... more prolific than Dan Brown. Yeah, he's written like 24 novels, memoirs, nonfiction. Uh, he, he grew up, um, uh, sorry, uh, <clears throat> in Baltimore, lived there his whole life. Uh, and he went to Catholic uh, high school and college, graduated in 1969 from Loyola with a degree in English. What, what, English majors? Ooh, hey. um, he was president of this chess club, weirdly. Uh, he wanted to join the Army Reserves. But he's got super bad eyesight. And if you've ever seen a picture of him, he's always wearing these super thick glasses. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he, he was really nearsighted and couldn't join the military, which is what he wanted to do. So he started working for an insurance company in the insurance, company, uh, insurance capital of America. That's Hartford, Connecticut. Um, and in 1982, he started writing The Hunt for Red October in his spare time. Wow. Um, and he was finished by 85. And he sold it for, to a very small press. The Naval Institute Press, believe it or not. Who knew? For five grand. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and they were impressed. Um, uh, here's another nice little tidbit about it. His agent, I guess, loved the book but said there were too many technical details in the first draft. <laughs> and so they went through and they cut 100 pages of technical details about submarines. And so it's kind of like, you know, what? they cut all the whaling stuff out of Moby Dick, like those yeah, really long ones about how you actually get whales and, you know, New England, uh, <laughs> up the, the shores of New England. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and it did pretty well. It sold about 45,000 copies, which is pretty good. But then Reagan read it and mentioned it, that he said it was his kind of yarn, which is public statement. Um, so it got picked up by a bigger publisher, then sold 300,000 in hard copies, and since then has sold over 2 million copies So that's like the paperback. pre-Oprah, Oprah effect. Yeah, that's a, pretty good, um, that's a pretty good recommendation from Reagan during the Cold War, Cold, Cold War book. That's a blurb that you want there. That's pretty great. So anyway, that, that's the story of how it came to be. He sold, uh, estimates, over 100 million copies in print um, for a long time. 
people thought he had some sort of informant in the military. Apparently, he never did, and huh. he never had any sort of security clearance, so he claims that he was offered it at one point, but he said he didn't want it because he thought it would just um, get in the way, and he'd spend too much time like trying to find out secrets and stuff, so he wanted <laughs> to write it as best he could. So that's Tom Clare. I read a bunch of these when I was in high school. I, I really enjoyed Hunt for Red October, it's- Some of All Fears, Clear and Present Danger, Patriot Games. Loved them all. All the Jack Ryan stuff, I loved it all. Couldn't get yeah, enough. Yeah, yeah. I read a couple of them, and we have a, a solid shelf of Tom Clancy mass market paperbacks yeah. in my house from my <laughs> husband's like high school, early college. Tom Clancy um, yeah. binge reading days. But uh, the Dan Brown comparison is interesting. I hadn't quite made that connection yet, but cool to see an author become that prolific and that well-recognized on sort of what was a coincidence, like just yeah. that happy circumstance of Reagan reading the book and talking about it. Um, and I mean, I, of its time too, of like, you know, playing into these fears about in 88, we were still super afraid of, like, Soviet subs rolling into the up the Potomac or right. something like that. Um, I got one little other quick story. He apparently did his first book signing at um, uh, a mall bookstore in New London, Connecticut, hmm. um, which there's a submarine base there, actually. And um, the owners of that bookstore got an early galley of Hunt for Red October at a uh, independent, independent bookstore convention, a bookseller's convention, and they wanted to have him... And it was the first book signing he ever did. They were great to him. He sold like 45 copies that day. He was super excited. (laughs) And so he went back to that same store for the launch of every subsequent book. Oh, that's so great. Isn't that awesome? That is awesome. There's a... uh... In a similar vein, there's a Barnes and Noble close to me in Richmond, uh, where David Baldacci did his very first. Oh, really? Thriller. You know, he writes sort of like legal adventure, mystery, thriller things, political spy stories, <laughs> and uh, he has come back to this Barnes and Noble for all of his books uh, since then too. It's cool to see authors like that. You know, appreciate where they came from and who the booksellers were that helped them get kicked off, but also a really nice reminder that it, there's so much luck involved in having, in having a book go crazy. Like who put it in Reagan's hands? I mean, someone, one of his advisors must've and Reagan notoriously, he's called it burning the noonday oil. So he'd actually didn't, he wasn't one of these presidents that worked until four in the morning. Like he Mm. took some time off and read, um, anyway, just to, just to put an end cap on that bookseller story, the last signing he did there, uh, he signed 1,500 copies of the, the last book that he did there. So fairly well, Tom Clancy um, uh, died October 1st, 2013, at the age of 66. All right, here Tell we go. Tell me something good, Jeff. Well, this is good. We think this is good. We're going to have to put this through methodology corner, though, a little bit here. Um, well, the people do like methodology corner. <laughs> we get more... We get more uh, Claim uh, request for statistics than I would have thought. So the people are like us, which I like to hear. Yeah, yeah. This convinces me that the the readers have found the right place. Yeah. <laughs> when we get this show is great. Please do more nerdy stuff. So there was a study published last week in the journal Just Science, which sounds fancy. Actually, it is it is it a is serious journal, but it's funny that it's just called Science. Um, it found that after reading literary fiction as opposed to popular fiction or serious nonfiction. People performed better on tests measuring empathy, social perception, and emotional intelligence. Skills that come in especially handy when you're trying to read someone's body language or gauge what they might be thinking. All right, so here's what the the test did. They had him read short sections of literary fiction. Um, A group did that, a control group, and some people did short sections of popular commercial fiction. And then they had them 
let's see, look at pictures of people mm -hmm. and try to decide what emotion they were feeling or they were trying to communicate. Let me try to remind myself here. Right. Yeah. The, yeah, the test is called Reading the Mind in the Eyes, and the subjects study 36 photographs that show pairs of eyes, and they choose which of four adjectives best describe each emotion. And the more you get, I guess, right, the higher your score. And those who read literary fiction before taking the test, only three to five minutes before the test, uh, did a lot better, noticeably better, the, the, the people, meaningfully better. So I mm -hmm. guess not just... Statistically um, significant. St which means that it's not just um, variation that can re readily account for it. So this is something that I guess those of us, and I'm going to say us, uh, you and I, kind of feel about literary fiction maybe? Did, yeah. What do you think? I, I've always kind of wondered about this, but I haven't... I've never been one of those sort of cheerleaders that say, yeah, literary fiction makes you a better person. I'm not really ready to say that. But... But I think like, that's exactly that's the phrase that I was about to use that I yeah. think it's part of our sort of mythology about what it is to be a reader, right. that, re that reading in general makes us better people. Yep. Um, and that's all anecdotal for the mo well, for everything that I've seen up to this point has been anecdotal people talking about the books that changed them, the thing right. that they the thing they read that shifted their thinking in some way or that showed them a new way to handle a situation or to treat people that that they were around. And so we all I think everybody sort of has a story somewhere about um, the way that a book has made you a better person. But I, we haven't really we haven't been able to see if that's true. Right. Or not. I'm really glad that in their methodology here, mm. uh, they conducted that these researchers conducted an experiment and actually manipulated yep. readers uh, emotional situations right before they took this mm -hmm. test rather than just saying, what kinds of books do you read mm -hmm. and doing a, a correlative thing. It's interesting to be able to actually see a causal yeah. direction. And so we here. don't know how long the effect would have lasted. Like if, you know, you read a bunch of literary fiction and you stop for a couple years, does the effect go away? Does it even last longer than four or five minutes after you've lifted your eyes for the page? Assuming this, that there's not some contaminating factor, which is a possibility with sure. all studies, right? There could be some weird control or variable that hasn't been accounted for. I guess the controversial part is in that sentence you just said, which most of us who consider ourselves readers uh, subscribe to, is that reading makes you better, is this suggests that not all reading does it the same. Right. Um, that if you're reading a work of commercial fiction, a thriller, or this is romance they, they talk about here, that it doesn't have the same effect. There could be other good effects um, to that kind of reading, and probably there are. Our gut sort of suggests that there are. But in terms of empathy, which is trying to put yourself into other someone else's shoes and think about how they are seeing the world, which is, I guess, what this eye test is supposed to um, mm -hmm. measure. It's not quite the same, which, and, and there's some reasoning, and this is uh, an article in the New York Times, and we'll put it in the show notes if you're more interested about this, but some of the analysis that scientists are, are supposed to do after they get data like this is sort of suggest why this might be. And the suggestion here was maybe in literary fiction, answers aren't so readily apparent. Um, characters don't as directly say what they're thinking or feeling or wanting or afraid of. Um, and so as a reader, you're doing a lot more emotional puzzle work, so mm -hmm. to speak, um, that the ambivalences and ambiguities and contradictions of literary fiction maybe have, make you practice guessing yeah, this kind I, of thing. I sort of wondered if, if they had broken out and, and instead of looking at literary fiction versus commercial fiction, if they had done character driven versus plot driven mm. because that they sort of 
discuss this a little bit farther down where the, where the researchers are hypothesizing about why these effects might be occurring. And I think there's something there. I think there's definitely a nugget in this idea that, uh, like we've joked on the show before about literary fiction being people in Brooklyn having thoughts. Right, yeah, exactly. You know, like not much happens in a lot of literary fiction. Yep. It's more about um, how the characters are processing whatever the experience that they're having is or just making sense of their lives and uh and so it makes sense to me that people who spend more time reading those sorts of things, you know, like that's what you're training your brain to do is to make guesses about how and why subjects yeah. are behaving or how and why characters are behaving or other people in your life where, you know, if you read a, a thriller romance, I've been reading a lot of romance lately. Everything is just put out in front of you. Here's what this here's what this person wants and here's what they're going after or here's the mystery to be solved and the clues that are laid out and it becomes very much about the plot, you know, driving the story forward and driving the reader to turn the pages, which is an enjoyable experience as a reader for sure, but the the exercise that you're doing is different, um solving a mystery about who did what rather than looking at how these characters are interacting right, yeah. and why. So I wonder if like if a really character-driven romance story would have showed a similar effect yeah. to literary fiction. I mean, that's one note I had, too. It's like they're using these, as we, I think, all of us know who think about it at all, genre definitions that mm -hmm. can be tricky, to say the least, right? I mean, not yeah. all literary fiction is the same. For example, the, the, exa the, the piece of literary fiction they used here was actually from a book we both really like, mm -hmm. uh, The Roundhouse. Um, by Lu by Louise Erdrich. Is that how we decided Erdrich? to Erdrich, Erdrich? Erdrich something I like that. I, I got to get on that post about. Oh, by the way, people have written in with um, requests for pronunciation oh, yeah. guides for authors. We so need pronunciation. We need, corner. That's one we need. So we're going to put that pronunciation corner. Um, and so that's one. And that for me, that's a pretty fastball down the middle literary fiction title. You know, I think it's an interesting and possibly problematic choice because. Ah, okay. Because a good chunk of that novel is about the main character trying to figure out what happened mm. to his mother and who did the bad thing to right. his mother. Yeah, there it, there her, are some yeah. yeah, there are some emotionally devastating yeah. moments for a lot of the characters and much of it does feel very literary, but it's not what I would call straight literary fiction. There's definitely a mystery component happening there. Yeah. Um I wonder I don't doesn't I'm looking you have to sign into this Journal of Science to get the full study. I wonder if they would give you the um, section they had people read. That'd be interesting oh, to that see. That would be interesting. Um, but it's an interesting title um, because for a lot of reasons. But I, I noticed that as an interesting choice for them for them to pick of all the mm -hmm. of all the gin joints in all the world, right? Um, mm -hmm. The one that we've talked about recently and both read in the last year or so. Relatively, yeah, it just came just out came of paperback. paperback last week. That's right. Mm -hmm. We talked about it on the show. Uh, anything else to say about that that you find interesting? I, I find this kind of stuff fascinating. I mean, this yes. is not a definitive study. You know, this isn't the the last um, word on this particular matter. Uh, yeah, matter, but please, more studies like this. Please, yeah. more experiments. It would be cool to do long-term. I don't know how you organize a long-term experiment where you can consistently manipulate what people are reading, but I'm really and, curious. And about, that people tell you the truth, right? Right, right, right. I'm, I'm really curious about does this effect that we see after people read for three or five minutes hold? Like, uh, can from, from this study, we can't draw long-term conclusions like right. people who read 
literary fiction more than anything else in their reading lives over years? Like, is there a cumulative effect of reading a lot of literary fiction versus reading a lot of commercial fiction? Or does it does it only have an effect if you've just finished reading the thing? And we're not talking about a long term change. uh, I don't know how you would do that in your ability to empathize. But I would like for people. This is great. Let's bring science. Yeah, right. Exactly. (laughs) Bring us all your science. What else do we Uh, say reading does that's good for you that they could test? It's not just like, what are they? What do we when we say reading is good for you, what do we mean besides this? It's kind of weird, right? Like it's just one of those platitudes we throw around. Yeah, but... I think it's one of those things that we feel, and so we like to think that it's true, right? Um, but uh, but it's smarter. I, I, think I guess all... smarter. That's yeah, something I, we say. But I think also that good music makes us, yeah, that's uh, true. you know, makes us feel like better people. Art in general, engaging with art that challenges us somehow makes us. Uh, it, it makes us feel like we're oh, growing that'd be interesting. or it shifts our perspective. I wonder if you had them look at, say, um, 15 masterpieces of world art and then do the same thing. Mm, or you do like a a really sort of straightforward work of art and then you yeah. throw up like a cubist Picasso right. that you have to stare at and figure out what's going on. That's that's That would be interesting. Yeah. Or watch 15 minutes of like The Godfather or some great movie. And then have mm-hmm. to do something similar. I don't know. It'd be curious to see how it compares against. You, you take sort of the high, whatever the literary fiction equivalent of movies is, right, and the literary fiction equivalent yeah. of art is, and see if there's. Um, yeah, I mean, I know we talk about reading definitely helps us understand the world beyond our daily personal experiences. And I'm reading a great book right now called Smarter Than You Think by Clive Thompson, which is about how the internet is not in fact ruining us. Right. Uh, But he talks about not just books that we read, but all of the reading that we all do online every day. Um, Even the sort of trivial reading, like reading people's Facebook updates and knowing what's going on in their lives, but that all of that extra data that we're putting into our heads about the world that exists beyond the world of each of us experiences right. each day helps us draw like our brains just naturally seek patterns and draw connections and because we're reading uh we're reading more maybe not more books but we're reading right. on average more in the world than uh than we ever have before we're making interesting connections and innovating things faster and don't you want clive thompson and jonathan franzen like in a cage match right now i want them to like let's that's settle my, this <laughs> once and for all your how your uh, your secret blog is Betty White, you know, like Jello wrestling. Right, mine, right, right. mine is the Jonathan Franzen Clive Thompson cage match, and you know, Mr. Thompson actually did research to support the claims. Hey, that, hey now that that's not making. fair. Asking for research, come on. Data to support your conclusions. All right. So, <laughs> I actually, I think I would like for each of them to write a five-paragraph essay. Oh God! <laughs> Please no. <laughs> Uh, we, this is sort of follow-up and also sort of news. Uh, we talked about Oyster at um, nauseating length a while ago, <laughs> and we're both still reading and both still fans of. But a, a new challenger has come onto the scene, mm-hmm. um, Scribd, uh, S-C-R-I-B-D, kind of an unfortunate name if you ask me. Anyway, um, has launched a competing, very similar service. Um, it's what eight ninety nine a month. Eight ninety nine a month, so they're undercutting by a dollar, like the mattress king, right? That you know, yeah, something and like that. Oyster rolled out on iPhone only, iPhone only, and invitation only, and Scribd is multi-platform. Yeah, Android, tablets, phones. You you're ready to go invitation. right now. Yeah. You can start a free trial where Oyster had to pony up right away. Um, mm-hmm. So c- I got a free trial of this. Did you? I did. I've I've looked at it on my phone briefly. Um, I've read some of the reviews just to get an overview so we could talk about it a little bit right now. Yeah. It seems like the catalog, whoever signed on with Oyster, 
seems to have signed on mostly the same with Scrib. There are some mm-hmm. differences a little bit, but largely the same catalog. But um, smaller, right? A little bit smaller. I, it's hard to it's hard to tell. It's hard to tell. Yeah, um, I have some technical complaints about. Oh, do you about Scrib? Yeah, Scrib. Um, Prior to launching this ebook service, right. if you're if you're listening to this, you may have heard of Scribd or you might have encountered it online uh, from a publisher or an author offering you the opportunity to read an excerpt of their work. Um, Scribd has been a great place where people have posted excerpts. A lot of publishers put their catalogs on there, and so I found when I went to Scribd on my phone that it knew of the other material that I had consumed on Scribd Ooh. prior to this ebook thing. So my Scribd on my iPhone is all cluttered up now with like the Random House catalog from fall 2012. Um, mm, that's and, uh, a little like, creepy. I don't like yeah, that. Yeah, it's, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't bother me so much that Scribd knows what I have read on Scribd in the past. Like I just assume that all of the stuff I do on the internet is sentient. <laughs> yeah, I guess we sort me. of ceded that territory, um, right? Yeah. Yeah, but it feels like these things should be separate. That um, if you want to launch an ebook app, especially if you're launching after Oyster and Oyster is gorgeous, uh, it needs to be slick and it that needs was to be my only comment, easy to get is that to, Oyster is to just your books. prettier. And that's yeah. completely subjective. But um, you know what? This is our show. Yep. You want someone else's subjectivity? Go somewhere else. <laughs> right. And you know, like, it's a... Go down the hall for women. It's a 90... 90- go down the hall for women. Did you say go down the hall for women? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a story. We, maybe we should talk that's about a, that. So. We, yeah, yeah. We'll have to explain well, yeah, that that's Because that sounds super bad all of a sudden. David Gilmore uh, said that. Uh, yeah, briefly, a uh, couple of weeks ago, David Gilmore, who is a Canadian novelist and who teaches uh, some literary courses at the University of, Tur- University of Toronto... Uh, gave an interview in which he stated that he's not interested in teaching books by women and that inevitably when his syllabus comes out and classes begin, someone asks where all the women are. And he explains that he only teaches books that he loves and what he loves are uh, dudes, dudes, serious heterosexual guys Mm -hmm. is the quote show uh, title there. Uh, yeah, right. And, uh, but, but he's also, he's read all of Proust twice. Uh, Once on audio. Uh, no, no, no. He's read it twice and listened to it twice. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. This guy's super... Yeah, I, I totally derailed super... this. This is my fault. I take full responsibility. Like May it please mini, the court. This is a miniature bad job old dude but yeah, segment. That's right. Uh, but yeah, so David Gilmore is super fun at parties and he doesn't like the ladies. Doesn't like uh, them. And he informs his students that if you want to read books by women, you can go down the hall. Um, and uh, also so Jeff... down the hall is our subjectivity about... Uh, Right. interfaces for this. So you, right. you, we both like Oyster's interface better, right? Yes. I mean, that's yeah, kind of what... Yeah, we do. And the, I think it, you know, Oyster is, what, 96 cents more per month? Yeah. And if for my dollar, for my less than a dollar, I will take uh, the the thing that that is extra pretty. Yeah, that's right. Sure. Um, but I, I'm going to do a, the free trial for Scribd and try it out. But I'm glad it exists for no other reason than this. Competition is good for us. Yes, indeed. It is good. For, I, I wonder... Uh, we talked about last week on the show that Oyster was looking for Android developers. I wonder if the uh, the uh, wind was carrying news of Scribd mm, maybe. and maybe this lighting a little fire under there. Yeah, uh, and I think the more of these that roll out, publishers had been working with Scribd for a while to yeah. do things like put up their catalogs and put That's up right. excerpts of books that were forthcoming to share with readers. So uh, it's possible that publishers feel more comfortable with Scribd. I'm totally guessing, uh, but they had previously existing relationships with them, and so if you can. If more people are trying these things, if more companies mm-hmm. develop, especially companies that are already working with publishers and know how to talk to them and how to get them to try, well, a new some thing, of it too I think is just uh, you know, it's like you've had this experience when you were a kid, like 
you're you, the 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 lake water is cold and you're mm-hmm. just sitting there on the dock and it's you and your siblings or friends. Yeah. And the first person to jump in has to be super brave. Right. But then once a couple of people have jumped in, you're like, ah, it can't be that cold, right? And you just, you just <laughs> kind of go in there. Everybody's already in there. So I kind of feel like this is part of that process, too. Of like, it's not scary. It's not going to tear right. down the walls. Like, let's just try some things here. I'm going to skip ahead because it's relevant here. This um, statistic from Readmill, which is another reading, uh, a reading app, um, it released some data about iPhone versus iPad users hmm. and how much each of them read. Like um, books or magazines yeah, the whole or thing. Books, Facebook magazine. or everything? Yeah, um, the whole thing. Uh, this is actually books mostly. I'm sorry, okay. but books. Um, and, you know, when Oyster came out, you expressed some trepidation, like, I'm not going to read on my phone that much. Yeah. And, then, <laughs> and then I quickly converted. Then you were super wrong and converted. So wrong. And I think you're, you're both right and representative in how you think mm. about that. Because most of us would think, you know, if you have an iPad and an iPhone and you're a reader, you're going to use an iPad because it's more like a book, right? And the thing that's more like a book is going to be the thing I'm going to use more likely. It's but just bigger. turns out, turns out, that is incorrect. Um, data shows that Readmill's iPhone users do average more time spent reading than an iPad owner. Hmm. For example, they're 45% more likely to open the app at all. And they average 40% more time spent in the app once it's been opened. Nice. iPhone users also tend to spend 10% more time per book and 15% more ebooks read. They leave 40% more comments and copy 20% more quotes than iPad users. Interesting. I don't know what to say about this. I don't know why this would be. The only thing I can come up with, and tell me what you think, is that it's that thing you described anecdotally from hanging out. Was it the car repair? You were yeah, at? yeah. I was getting a new key card. I for think my if car. you just have your phone with you all mm-hmm. the time, you're just gonna. You, there are more opportunities to use it than maybe we think. Does yeah, that make that's, sense? That's exactly what my guess was going to be. Yeah. Also, that I got there first, so I win. <laughs> yeah, you, you just always win. <laughs> down the hall for losers. Yeah, down the hall for losers. I'm all set. <laughs> yeah, I think you know we all just sort of reflexively pull our phones out now right. when we're standing in line somewhere, when we're waiting, or when you sit down for a meal and your friend hasn't met you yet. Mm-hmm. And um, th- what has happened for me with Oyster is that instead of like hitting Twitter, I hit Oyster and read a couple of pages. And that's that's probably more likely. You have to... You're going to pick up your phone and take it out the door with you every time you leave the house. Yep. Um, if you're taking your tablet or, or a laptop or something, you've got to like remind yourself to also add that extra device to what you're carrying. And um, and I don't. I mean, I have a tablet that I don't take with me very often. It's more of like loaded up if I'm going to travel. But my phone goes everywhere with me, and I can That's open right. it up and read anywhere. And I found now that now that I have a reading app on my phone that I really like, I'm looking for places to ah, use it. There you go. Yes, totally. It's when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. That's right. Um, it's like, awesome. I'm seven people deep in this line for the drugstore. I've got right, eight like minutes to I, read. It makes me less homicidal <laughs> when I get stuck right. behind the person writing the check for three items in the express lane at the oh. grocery store. Because I'm like, well, it's cool. I'll just read a couple pages here. Yeah. Uh, and it's been great to have. But I think uh, if I had to guess... I would agree with you here that that's the use case for most people. I wonder then, um, 
if maybe for folks like you and I, that our ideal phone is a slightly larger, you and I both have the iPhone 5, right? Mm -hmm. You have an iPhone 5? Yeah. That our ideal phone might be a slightly larger phone that's sort of like a mini tablet. Like, I'm not even going to say the word mm. phablet. Oops, there it was. <laughs> um, but, you know, like a four and a half, five inch phone that's, you know, a little more. I don't like, I, I'm a pretty quick reader and I, I, I think you are too. Mm -hmm. I don't like swiping so much. Um, but anyway, that, I thought that was interesting. The only, the only stat they didn't give me that I'd like to hear is minutes per session, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. Like if maybe the iPad owner doesn't open it as often, but once they do, they've like really settled in on a long mm -hmm. winter's night with some port um, and, a, and, a, and a whatever they're uh, Their smoking. Their library has many leather-bound books yes, and right. smells of rich I, I wonder if that's any different because um, it says 45% more likely to open the app at all. And they spend average 40% more time spent in the app. That doesn't say per session or just an aggregate. Just total, yeah. So if it is an aggregate, it's only 5%. It doesn't scale with the more likely. So they, an iPad owner would spend more time in the app per open, if that's mm -hmm. right. But not a huge amount, you know, not like a multiple um, yeah, I'm going to be looking around. I, I try to pay attention to what people are using yeah. when I'm out and about. And I remember when iPads first came out that it, you saw them everywhere. Right. That somebody who wanted a thing like that had an iPad. And uh, and I saw I used to see people like sitting with them when I was getting my hair done. And I've noticed the last few times that like I used to throw up like a paperback in my purse when mm -hmm. I was going to go get my hair done and, you know, sit there for an hour letting the color cure, whatever the technical term for letting <laughs> your color set in. You mean curing. staining staining your head. Staining, yeah, curing. No, I would like to be cured like pork. Thank you. <laughs> Um, but I sit with my phone now and, and read on my phone and I look around and it looks like everyone else is poking at their phones too. Yeah. Maybe they're reading or maybe they're doing Facebook, but I'm kind of okay with the screen size of my iPhone five. For me, the swiping action disappears when I'm immersed in the book. I oh, don't really notice that it's happening to me. Yeah. Uh, and the phone is small. Plus the text in these eBooks on your phone is infinitely bigger than the text on like a Facebook update yes. or a Twitter stream or an Instagram caption. And so it's much more comfortable than doing that. It could just be that as eBooks have become a thing and more screen sizes have become available, that we were just dead wrong mm -hmm. that the thing that's more like the size of a book we're used to would be the thing we want. Yeah, and I think we're, we're getting into this interesting point of the development of e-reading devices where the folks doing th this inventing are realizing that an ebook doesn't have to do That's all right. the same things that a print book does. And in fact, the closer you try to stick to print the print book experience when you're developing ebooks, the sort of the worse it goes right. for readers, um, which is a thing that I love about how Oyster is developed and, uh, and the Scribd app works the same way. Um, it You're reading, but there's nothing that's like, hey, let's pretend this is a print book. Um, it's designed to work well on a phone mm -hmm. um, for people who spend times on their phone or on their tablet. And uh, and I'm very happy that we're, we're getting to that point. I don't need to, you don't have to make it sound like pages are turning. I know I'm looking <laughs> yeah. A screen. <laughs> yeah, that, I thought that was cool in the original iPad for about nine minutes where yeah. you actually like turn the page and it curled. I'm like, yeah, enough of that. Right. Um, all right, let's go on. Let's move on to um, eight year olds. Eight year olds. 
man, okay, so this little girl is kind of my hero, and this is maybe a, a, a bad job publishing industry yeah. section. Uh, there's a story from uh, the Today Show, from today.com. It comes under the moms topics, but the Today Show also uh, has been doing a lot of book coverage lately, and they have a book section Oh, right, because dads website. don't read. Dads don't read, I forgot. Right, yeah, dads don't dads. read. Sorry, uh, Sorry dads. Is there a todayshow.com dad section? I wonder. I have no idea. Um, Perhaps that tells you something. Just, that tells you something. The, perhaps this will just be a giant section of yes. the show about sexism. Right. Uh, and this little girl, Casey Cooper, she's eight years old. Uh, she lives in Berkeley, California with her parents. And she was in Half Price Books with her mom. They were browsing the bookstore. And uh, the mom heard Casey calling from across the store. Um, look what I found. You have to look at this. And the little girl was so enraged that she was actually in tears. And what she had found uh, was a series. Uh, displayed in the children's section called How to Survive Almost Anything. Uh, and there's a boys-only and a girls-only title. Mm -hmm. uh, the boys-only one has a giant, like, snapping crocodile on the front, and the right. little boy on the cover is running, and he, he's taking action. And the girls-only one has a girl on a zip line. She looks like she's having fun, but also another little girl posing in a mini skirt with her hand on her hip, like, uh, looking very that, The old half sassy. akimbo. The old half akimbo. Right. There. Yeah, half akimbo. Yeah, the mm -hmm. broken-down doll thing that Tyra Banks <laughs> right. used to talk about on America's yes. Next Top Model, of which I have seen more seasons than I should admit. Uh, so this little girl it was very upset, and, and I think rightfully so, that the, the book for boys has, has chapters on things like how to survive a shark attack and how to survive in a desert and how to survive whitewater rapids. And the girl version has chapters on things like how to survive a fight with your BFF and how to survive a fashion disaster and how to survive mm. a breakout. Uh, so we've got shark attacks and pimples as well, the choices here. Uh, first of all, Casey is our hero of the week. Yeah, hero, hero of the week. Good hero job, Casey. You, you know who's not my hero of the week? Let me just say this. Um, Tell me the this. person who wrote this story. Mm -hmm. um, did you notice the first line? Yes. Constant Cooper's daughter, Casey, is no shrinking violet. Come on. In a story about girls, like, sticking up for themselves, you've got to use that phrase. Anyway, okay, I'm just <laughs> going to leave that there. Yeah, I so, have another unfavorite person, but you keep going. Yeah, so, first of all, the, the books for boys and the books for girls thing sucks. Mm -hmm. We don't like that at all. Even nope. if they were sort of not so radically different in content, right? If it just, we don't like that. So, so let, let me just get this straight, because I think I've got it straight. So it seems sexist that the girls' problems are BFFs and pimples where the boys get to fight alligators? Is that the, is that the, and they're not as, they don't have as much agency or adventure and they're not as capable as handling well, tough situations? And just that these reinforce and reify these yeah. old gender stereotypes about what boys like to do and what girls like to do. Right. That, that this says boys want to go have adventures and girls just care about looking cute. Yeah, because um, I got to say, the girls' one sounds way more practical. That's true. <laughs> I mean, just like that boys are going to be out wrestling sharks. Super, super bad idea. Yeah, but Jeff, actually. if you're eight, you don't need practical. You don't Well, that's want what I'm saying. Like, yeah, that's yet. interesting that the guys uh, want this escapist adventure stuff. That's the, the right, putative. Right, this is the presumption. I, presumption. And the and, girls want zip lines and, and uh, what troubles, mascara. 
Casey Cooper, our hero of yeah. the week, the most. What was the tr- most troubling for her was that in the girls' book, there's a chapter about how to survive a camping trip. And Casey loves camping, so she flipped through the book and found that chapter. Um, and then it says here, it was sad to read, quote, camping may not always be a girl's top choice of activity, but Aww. here's how to make the best of a bad situation oh, and survive in style. And it's illustrated with a girl who's dreaming about lounging on a beach and notes, besides, fresh air is excellent for the skin and a brisk walk is a marvelous workout. Now, why the hell are we talking to eight-year-old girls about what's great for that their skin and how they idea. need to be working out? This is that not is okay. That is terrible. That is just super, This is a bad job. Bad. So the little girl is upset and an employee noticed that she was upset. And uh, so Casey explained to the Half Price Books uh, employee what the problem was. And the, uh, the employee said that she agreed that it was uh, upsetting, that it was wrong. And uh, she moved the books. She removed the books from the shelves. She moved them to a different section of the store. She did not remove them from the store wholesale. But it sounds like this this one bookseller did a good job of validating Casey Cooper's uh, feelings and agreeing with her and recognizing that something problematic was going on here. Now, here is the person that I'm upset with this week. Joshua Lynn, who is the manager at this half price bookstore, mm-hmm. wants to clarify. It's important to him that we all know that these books were not removed from the store. Uh, He says, we understand why the books upset her and we commend the girl for speaking out against stereotypical portrayals portrayals of gender roles in books. But I would like to stress that we are strong advocates of First Amendment rights and do not advocate censorship or removal of objectionable books from circulation. It seems to me that Mm. Mr. Joshua Lynn does not quite understand what censorship is. Yeah, this is what we call trying to have your cake and eat it too, right? Mm -hmm. It's not... How many times do we have to do this, Shinsky? <laughs> too, too many. Too I many was, times? I was tired of doing this the first time. I know. Because all bookstores don't carry everything in print. They may have to make decisions about what they carry. Right. So it's not censorship to pick one thing over that thing. It's not saying you shouldn't be able to print it. Neither you nor I, being the pinko communist liberals when it comes to books like this that we are, would say that it should be illegal for these publishers to print this. We would never no. say that. No, these can be available. And if you want to buy your children stereotypical gender portrayal books, like no, that's, that's you know, on you, fella. Your little red wagon to pull. Right. But he, the, the store does not. They, they shouldn't be using censorship as a cover to keep these things on the shelf. Well, if, sure, and it's also not, it's just not censorship. It's just Re- not, it's, yeah. Retailers' jobs is to stock their stores with the materials that their customers want to buy and therefore keep themselves profitable and in That's business. Right. Uh, if you... You can't, you can't keep like twenty five different kinds of raisin bran on the shelves <laughs> in your local grocery store. If you if you're running a mom and pop store, you're going to pick like one or two kinds of raisin bran that are the best fit for the most of your customers and will please more of them. And that doesn't mean that you're censoring the other twenty three kinds right. of raisin bran or removing them from circulation. You know, uh, Casey Cooper never said here, let's burn all the copies right. of this book. Let's tell the publisher they're not allowed to print them or sell them. She's not saying they should be illegal. Uh, but this is troubling that these books are commercially, you know, put in front of kids this way. And it's not censorship for a store to decide not to sell a product that their customers don't want. Right. <laughs> so really what the, the store did is move them to a less prominent area of the children's section. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I guess, I don't know. I guess, I, you know, to be honest, I don't know what I want the bookstore to do here. To be fair, to be fair. I'm not sure what I want them to do. Yeah, like, because on know, part of me, I'm like, I'm not requiring them to have the same feeling about the book than I are, but I also don't want these books on the show. I mean, I don't, I don't right. know. 
Yeah, um, you know, I, I worked in, at Barnes & Noble for a couple of years, and the way that circulation works there is you scan a book, and if the book hasn't sold, when I was there, it was 90 days. It might be a shorter time period now. But if the book hadn't sold a copy in 90 days, it would be returned to the publisher to make mm-hmm. room for something else. Uh, so I think if I had been this bookseller and I was looking for a way to... Uh, to you you uh, put them in a box in the corner right, and then right, scan them to, 90 days right, later. <laughs> right. I maybe would have hid them behind something mm-hmm. or I would have scanned them right then and been like, oh, you know what? Like, Actually, these no one has bought this book for 90 days. And so we can go ahead and get rid of it. And now I have a tidy justification for my removal of the title. You know what I would like, and I wish we had one right now, is I wish we had a good rec for eight-year-olds that's good for kids, that for both boys and girls. Oh, yeah. You know, that's kind of, I think that's what the missing piece from this story is, is like, there's a this this these two things suck, but how about this thing? Let's go give this thing some awesome attention because that's the way around this kind yeah, of stuff, if right? If you have a if you've got kids or nieces and yeah. nephews in this age range, and you have found something that that totally, is totally, we book will talk about them, it next week. Yeah, hit us up. We'll podcast give us a plug. That's the what, that's what we can do right here. That's how we right. Make we can talk about the good stuff. If I'm the publisher here, I I would like for the publisher yeah, to go. stop printing these and instead like make something that is great for boys and girls or if you uh, if you really have to have a boys only and a girls only book because you see like branding value in that then can't you have the same darn book and put two covers on it or something? Like, that's something. still problematic, but it's less problematic. Yeah, something like that. Um, anyway, let's bad go Bad job. Bad job, bad job. But good job, Casey. Yeah, good job, Casey. You are our hero for the week. And okay. now let's just talk about... Well, let's do a sponsor. Let's do a Actually, sponsor. this makes a lot of sense. Yes, it does to, make to a lot. I was just here. thinking so, that. Yeah. Uh, uh, this show is also sponsored this week by Lungs Full of Noise by Tessa Mellis. Uh it is a debut collection of short stories. There's 12 stories in the collection. It's from the University of Iowa Press. And these stories explore femininity that is magical, raw, and even sometimes grotesque. Uh, all of the women in these stories are setting out to correct their misdirected lives, to try to get things back on track. And there's a touch of the surreal to them. Um, like in one story, teenage girls binge on grapes to dye their skin purple because a, a teenage magazine uh, advice article tells them that like, if you do this and you have purple skin, you'll get a prom date. Oh. <laughs> There's a college student who battles her roommate who happens to be from Jupiter and has inadvertently seduced all of the boys with her intergalactic charms and, <laughs> and af- af- from outer space lady parts. Nice. <laughs> yeah, and there's another one that I uh, have read a piece of in this book that has competitive ice skaters who screw the blades for their ice skates directly into their feet to give them a competitive advantage um the premises to me feel a little bit like karen russell i was just gonna say that yeah it does sound like that like just a little well maybe two steps off kilter wherever yeah. kilter is they're two little, they're two two good jumps away yeah, from it a little weird uh sort of a going in sideways exploration of uh women's issues and femininity in fiction um i like that touch of the weird and the yeah. magical in a short story particularly it's hard to sustain in long fiction i think but short yeah. stories it works super well and so if this is ringing a lot of your bells the way that it's ringing a lot of a lot of mine uh the book is called lungs full of noise it's by tessa mellis uh, and we'll have a link to it in the show notes, bookriot.com slash podcast. You can check it out now. And thanks uh, to the University of Iowa Press yeah. and Lungs Full of Noise for sponsoring the podcast this week. S- speaking of a touch of weird. <laughs> this is like a touch of awesome. Yeah, Jeff. a touch of maybe more than a touch of awesome, uh, weird. Um, you may have heard of um, Mucho Libre. 
I have, and I've heard of Nacho Libre. Uh, Mucho Libre, a um, South American wrestling tradition mm -hmm. where the competitors wear, it's kind of like WWF wrestling. They wear masks and there's a lot of theatricality. And yeah. I, I don't know if it's staged like WWF wrestling is or not. I don't know the answer to that. Um, but this is a literary spinoff called Lucha Libre, mm -hmm. um, and where competitors put on masks and they take on pseudonyms. But instead of wrestling, they go onto a stage, they're given three random words and a laptop that's hooked up to a projector that the audience can see, and then they get five minutes to write the best short story. And then at the end of the match, the losing writer has to reveal their identity, and the winner goes on. And the grand prize, if you make it out, what could a writer ask for? A book contract. Nice. How about that, huh? This is fun. You know, there was a talk a year or so ago about... We could get Clive Thompson and Jonathan Franzen do this. Oh. Yes, I was just thinking, like, what if Stephen King put on yeah. a mask and, like, went into one of these oh, that'd be competitions awesome. and then unmasked himself? It would be so great. Uh, there was a talk a couple of years ago about there being some sort of reality competition show about writers, mm -hmm. and that it, it hasn't come to fruition yet, and I'm... I think that's probably a good thing. <laughs> but yeah. uh, the day the announcement came out, I remember Twitter being full of people being like, oh, really seriously, could there be anything more boring than like watching a bunch of writers write and be angsty about it? But this is a really fun Sounds idea. like we'd go to this. I would totally go to this. Unfortunately, it's in Lima, Peru, which is great for the Lemans or the Peruvians. But not um, so much for but us. But tough for us. That's a, t that's a tough Saturday night for us. Um, Going to field trip? Get a little book riot field <laughs> yeah, trip? A little to, book riot field trip to Lima, to Peru. To Lucho Libro. I think that's really that's fun. fun. I, I we don't have anything to say about that except that's fun. Yeah, it would be cool. Maybe if they do like a, a big bracket version yeah, there you go. of it and then you get to watch a season. Uh, I would watch this reality that is show. Hard. That, that I is think. hard. I mean, I took one creative writing class in college, so I'm clearly um, qualified to talk about how hard this is. But three three letter three words in five minutes yeah, is a that tough, five minute piece that is a tough get it's a real and i was thinking about the pressure of having everybody be able to watch you writing on that like on that projector screen as you're writing like i get self-conscious when i'm like if you and i are sharing a google doc with each other i know seriously <laughs> I can right see that like you're watching me backspace when i get I like stage it. fingers and i start <laughs> miss i miss type things all the time yeah that's it's just a lot of pressure but it's probably smart to keep it at five minutes so it does stay yeah. interesting for the people that are watching but I would. I'm, there's got to be room to do something like this. Something, yeah. I loved. I don't know if I've talked about it on the show yet. I loved uh, Hard Knocks on HBO, which follows each year. <laughs> That'd it's be like, interesting. Yeah, it's like five or six ep episodes of training camp for an NFL team, and like I'm not really that into football, but this process is fascinating. Well, you know, me. you and I would be so down for a literary version of Mad Men. Oh yeah, we would be all over that. Oh, yeah, like set in a publishing house yeah. in the 60s. Uh, oh, boy. Yeah, we'd be yes. over that like gum on a New we York would. City sidewalk. If somebody could find a cool way to show like a bunch of writers competing to get into a thing and then navigating the hairy world of publishing and, right. uh, and make it not boring, I would watch that. For sure. It's that not boring piece. That the I not boring about. part. Yeah, I mean, do you think it's the masks and the shouting and the drinking probably that helps out with <laughs> yeah, that? Yeah, this is a thing that like the New York publishing establishment would never have invented. So thank <laughs> you, Lima, Peru. Thank you, Lima, and some people with some time on their hands and thinking creatively. All right. Um, this is sort of follow-up. I mean, this is an ongoing question these yeah. days, um, this this phenomenon called showrooming, showrooming, which is people going into brick-and-mortar stores, real 
uh, physical, not real. I use that word interchangeably with physical, and that's not the case. Physical stores, you know, down, down, or wherever they're going with their phones and smartphones and less tablets because that's kind of big and clunky. And the, the theory goes they go in there to look at products. And then they look on their phone and buy them right there from Amazon or buy.com or somewhere else. They can Mm -hmm. get a cheaper deal. And uh, brick-and-mortar retailers don't like this because they feel like they're losing sales and that customers – first of all, they don't like they're losing sales, period. But they also don't think that customers appreciate the service that actually is being provided by actually being there, right, Right, for people to come in to do. Um, and it's more been an anecdotal thing, right? Like we hear stories from booksellers all the time. Oh, like yeah. someone came in and they asked for suggestions and then they s- wrote it down on their piece of paper and they ran off right. to buy and, it from Amazon. And sometimes there are, there's a bookstore bingo hashtag on yeah. Twitter where booksellers share the weird and funny and infuriating things that happen to them. And, uh, and they get people who ask about books or, you know, get a big long list and then will even just say like, Oh, thanks. And I'm, you know, do you want me to order that book for you? No, I'm going to go home and get it from Amazon, which, which is like, like being stabbed in the face, right? Super bad form. <laughs> That's just super bad form to say that. Uh, but it has all been anecdotal and there right. have even been a couple bookstores have made cute little like YouTube music videos and, or posted signs in their stores that say like, you know, please don't either please don't use your phone in here or don't use your phone to order something from a different place. Like we'd be happy to order it for you. And if we're providing the service of recommending books to you and helping you discover them, then you like that service and you need to give us your dollars to keep us in business. business. But it's interesting that this, the study um, study. is showing that this isn't like, this is a myth basically. Well, it's not a myth, but it's only it's not, 6% of people using their smartphones in a store do so with the intent of purchasing a product online. Yeah, it's not quite the thing that yeah. we think it is. So this was a study done by the Columbia Business School, oh, my alma mater, mm-hmm. um, and AIMIA, A-I-M-I-A, a loyalty management company. Um, and should we look at Methodology Corner for a second? I'm yeah, not sure. Yeah, but first, can we talk about this amazing sentence? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. At the end of the second paragraph, there's like the best n- analogy ever. Like the millions of microbes that live in your gut, Come on. smartphones help retailers more than they hurt them. Like, really? This person sat down. Oh, it's the third paragraph. Yeah. Uh, Nathaniel Mott sat down to write about how smartphones don't hurt us very much. And his comparison was the microbes that live in our guts. Mm-hmm. I just had a minute when I, I, I just needed to say this. This is unnecessary. Nathaniel Mott. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so the, the 6-1... The 6.1%, which is the highlighted statistic in the story, they call exploiters. That means premeditated about lower prices, right? Okay. They're going in the store to look with the idea that they're going to find the lowest price. But that doesn't tell the whole story, right? Mm-hmm. 12.6 are calling savvies. That means they're calculating but persuadable. Okay. That means that they'll go buy it somewhere else if it's a lot cheaper, but they'd be amenable to buying it right there for a variety of reasons, right? Mm-hmm. 19.4% are price sensitives. They don't plan, but they're going to look for a deal, right? Yep. 31.7% they're experience seekers. So they not not just price but also, you know, the bookstore mm-hmm. and the lights and the coffee and whatever else. And then 30.2% they're using their phone, but they're going to buy it there. They're yeah. like just using it for for research. So that 6.1% is a little deceiving because basically anyone that's not in the 30.2% could under the right conditions 
go find something in a physical store and then go buy it online. Mm -hmm. So that maybe accounts for all that anecdotal data we're hearing. But in terms of people just coming in to look and there's no way they're going to buy it here, that's actually a very, very small percentage of the population, it turns out. This is reassuring and uh, and interesting. I wish that they had broken this out by different industries. Like, yeah, they didn't do that. Um, it studied 3,000 people took part. So there's a lot of people yeah, lot in of three people. markets in the U.S., uh, the U.K., and Canada. Um, so we don't know. Like, it could be it could be that books, for whatever reason, there's a higher percentage of people looking for deals. It could That very well could be the case. We don't know from this. Well, and it could be, you know, there's not like a digital option if you're shopping for a washer and a dryer. But you've got this choice when you walk into a bookstore that if the hardcover is sitting there and yeah. the book looks interesting, but the hardcover is $25, you might want to snap a picture of the cover and then go home mm-hmm. and buy a digital copy for yourself or, you know, put it in Evernote and file it and look at that cover when it comes out in paperback. Like there are a lot of reasons that people might be using their phones, but, but I think there is a difference between the way that we shop for books and the ways that we shop for other things, because there isn't a choice. Like if I'm standing in Lowe's because my dryer died, I can look at dryers and Lowe's and then I can go look at dryers at Sears and Home yep. Depot and compare right. those. And, and then maybe if an online retailer had a cheaper price than all of those places, I would find the thing online and order it there. But there's not a, a guaranteed big divide there the way that you just know. Yeah. If a book is out in hardcover and you've discovered it, it's going to be cheaper as an ebook. There's a lot of data here, and I think a lot of it's really interesting, but we want to, don't want to get too far into it. I'm going sure. to leave you with one more because they do break out books and music into one category for one mm-hmm. statistic. And that is how often people shopping for that category look for information on their phone while shopping. And books and music had the second highest incidence of people looking for information. Books and books are thrown in together, second only to electronics and appliances. 83% of people shopping for electronics and appliances at least occasionally use their phone, um, and 45% of them always do. For books and music, 67% um, at least occasionally use their phone while shopping to look for information. And 30% always do. So it does seem like people are more likely in books and music than every other category, but electronics and appliances to use their phone as part of their shopping experience. So maybe you're like pulling it out to see what the average Goodreads rating is. Could be a lot of, yeah, it could be a lot. It could be adding it to a wish list. It could be texting someone if they've read this. Could be, you know, pulling up a list of books they've saved. Um, to mm-hmm. to look up later. It's very difficult to know maybe other titles by the same... A million different reasons you might look into something. But um, that's a story that we're interested in. Um, and it's just kind of an interesting, like, internet era thing, like how yeah. our habits are changing here. Okay, so we did the read more on iPad. I, I bumped that up. We could have done this before. Oh, yeah, we could have tied this if in. We, we would have really been paying attention. Um, I just got, I, my rage was too strong know, to I be know. paying attention. Uh, the Christian Science Monitor had a piece this week about how having a strong children's section might actually be the secret to success for uh, indie bookstores. So Publishers Weekly uh, did this informal survey, and we'll drop links to, to all of this in, where they wanted to investigate how sales had gone over the summer in independent bookstores and found that most indie stores that had strong children's sections were doing fine. 
Uh, that's the sentence. Uh, so there, there are some methodology yeah, questions there, like, like how there what, is there any? <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Show me your methodology, right, yeah. please. Uh, how do you, right? What's the operational definition of strong children's mm-hmm. section? How did they determine that a store had a strong a strong children's section? But uh, so anecdotally, basically, right. it's not even really a study. No, uh, anecdotally, stores that have. Uh, strong children's sections, maybe a high percentage of their sales come from children's books, um, are are doing well or Relative, okay. Doing or better on average are, than your right. average. Let's put all that in the side. All the methodology problems, you go get to sit in the corner for just a second. Let's Down pretend for a minute that the methodology and sampling is all sound and that the finding is that um, stores with children's sections do better. Let's mm-hmm. just enter that into the record as a possibility. This makes total sense to me. It's called confirmation bias, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome <laughs> back to the show, confirmation <laughs> bias. It's nice to have you. Um, and maybe it's because I have kids now, but like you go into a bookstore that has a children's section, there's just you just don't shop for children's books the same way you shop. I shop for books mm-hmm. online. It's just not the same deal. You want to see. Is this gonna? Is this gonna hold up to slobber chewing? Is it? You know? Does it? <laughs> does it have good pictures? Is the f- font readable? Does it feel? You know? All those kinds of sure, things. If your kid is holding on to the book, screaming about how they uh, want yes. to take it home, yeah. we call that um, extortion. Um, <laughs> all kids those are good things, at extortion. All those things really do matter, and yeah. it, it gets you into the bookstore. It's something to do for a few minutes with your kid, and you're, if you're there. Maybe you're going to pick up something else for yourself or a friend or a gift, mm-hmm. um, establish an emotional connection to that store. So I really think this is plausible. I, don't, I do too. I don't I, know if, you know if it's going to hold up under a study. I think but. it's plausible. I think uh, there's a bookstore owner named Bruce Delaney uh, who's quoted here. He owns Rediscovered Books in Boise, Idaho. And uh, this piece quotes him as saying that one of the reasons uh, that kids and a kid's section bumps up the sales numbers, he says, is that kids don't go home and buy a book that they saw in an indie store on Amazon. Right. He says an adult will showroom you, uh, which maybe they won't now because I was going to say, wait a minute. We do have Hold studies second, about yeah. showrooming Bruce Delaney. I mean, I guess, the they, I guess they will more than a kid will. <laughs> I want to offer tours on the data bus <laughs> someday. <laughs> uh, an adult will showroom you, but they will not do that if their child has a lovely picture book in their hand. And that makes sense to me. It's hard to say. Uh, you're, you love the very hungry caterpillar that you are holding yeah. on to right now, but you can't have it because we could go home and order it for $3 less and then it'll come in a couple of days and then you can have <laughs> right. the very hungry caterpillar. Yeah. That, uh, that does not solve your children extortion problem. I thought this was weird too. Like when you get into specific titles, you know who we start talking about? John Green, baby. Which doesn't seem to me like, I mean... I know, like, in publishing, children's and young adult often fall into the same sort of divisions. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to, like, the idea of what I'm thinking about in terms of a children's section, this is not what I'm thinking of. Yeah, I hadn't... That's not the piece that hung me up there. I was thinking about how, like, John Green has done this thing that very few writers yeah. in general have done, where they've busted beyond right. uh, being part of the discussion in books and are really just part of the cultural discussion at large. Um, I, I think The Fault in Our Stars sort of did what for young adult readers, what Fifty Shades of Grey did in mm-hmm. adult readers. And there were a lot of teens hearing about it and picking it up just because of their friends. So if you've got your kids uh, in the indie bookstore and the and the John Green book is on display that all their friends at school are talking about, yeah. um, you can pick it up for them right there. And, and well, and here's the survey that I would like to see is mm. how much 
reading that say like 12 to 14 year olds are doing, how much are they reading print books or reading digitally? Mm -hmm. Uh, The teenagers in my life, my nieces and nephews use their tablets and their phones all the time, but they don't read on them. They're still reading in print. Hmm. And I have no idea if that's like an anecdotal use case or if it's typical. That's interesting. The other thing from this store that I thought made a lot of sense is that um, children's events get a lot of people into the store because it's more like something to do with your kids. Mm -hmm. Like a story time. Yeah. And that gets you into the store, maybe without even a particular title in mind, unlike Mm -hmm. say a signing or a talk by an author, we are coming for one specific thing. This is just getting people into the store in general that wouldn't be coming uh, there otherwise. So that, that's a, that's interesting. interesting. Okay, so it's not the most rigorous study in the world, <laughs> but, it's but the causal chain at least seems logical. Like there's a series of reasonably admissible premises that lead to a pretty interesting conclusion that resonates with my own experience, which is probably the easiest way to make an error in judgment because all those things line up for you. <laughs> yeah, I'm still way back at reasonably admissible premises. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so let's do new books and let's get let's, out of here. New books. All right. So this first one, I'm super excited. I've been looking forward to this book for months. It is called Paddle Your Own Canoe, One Man's Fundamentals for Delicious Living by Nick Offerman. You know him as Ron Swanson from NBC's Parks and Recreation. Uh, He is a... Ron Swanson and Nick Offerman are both like meat-loving, flannel-wearing, wood-chopping, manly men. Uh, I think there's a lot of Nick Offerman in his character, Ron Swanson. I was going to ask you about this. There are some differences, but there's like... How much of this is like a Colbert thing? I think Offerman brought a lot of himself to Ron Swanson. He, in his off time, when he's not acting on the show, he runs the Offerman wood shop in LA where he and several people who work for him make things out of wood. Uh, are we sure this is an all performance art? How sure news, are you? I'm pretty sure. How much money? 50 bucks you'd bet? Yeah, I would bet 50 bucks. It's not all, all performance right. art. This is all not right. Colbert putting on a Bill O'Reilly sort of character. Okay, okay. Um, so the book is part mem. It's mostly memoir, but this you know the subtitle "Fundamentals for Delicious Living" mixes in a little advice, not quite self help, but uh, each chapter presents stories from Nick Offerman's life and then uh, breaks them down into one of these fundamentals for delicious living. And some of them are really funny, uh, like. Uh, the mustache makes the magic, uh, and how to grow and cultivate manly, sexy facial hair. Uh, but most of this is about his his young life growing up in Illinois on a farm where he had to work uh, with his hands and cut beans down off of stalks. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, he was making canoes and then how he you know went off to college and discovered acting and sort of discovered himself um, as an artist. But, the these pieces that have made his life uh, what he feels to be you know rich and delicious it's very funny uh, the voice is really wry and if you like that Ron Swanson voice on Parks and Recreation you will likely enjoy this but uh, I got to go to the first book event on his tour uh, for it in New York we I was up there for meetings yes to get you to were that's spend right spend some quality time with you this yeah week. you did I wore slacks even it's, and yeah. They're and a little a tight, I have to admit. They're, they're a few years old. They're now they're now aspirational pants. But anyway, back to the story. <laughs> we call those accountability pants. There we go. In I my like house. that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Nick Offerman was doing this launch event at the Barnes and Noble at Union Square, and he brought his guitar and he sang some songs that he had written. Uh, one was about his wife, and one was a rewrite of the Carrie Underwood song "Jesus Take the Wheel," uh, nice. <laughs> that involves uh, all sorts of sacrilegious things. And then he did some readings, and he hung around for hours. 
hours for people to sign nice. books. He seemed very gracious. Packed, packed house? Packed house, mm-hmm. yeah. The the whole top level of that Barnes & Noble was filled, and they were then bringing people up from the it's third, a big store. The third that floor the who had been hanging out. That is the Barnes & Noble flagship store. That's it the is. big one. Yeah. It is. It's a big, it's a big, beautiful store. And the signing went for an hour, and then I was in like the 10th row of seats, and it took an hour and a half before I got my book signed. Wow. And there were people that probably 20 rows more behind me and then people that were on the floor below that coming wow. upstairs and he was just hanging out like he was you know funny and gracious and uh i'm a couple hundred pages into the book now and and really enjoying it it's a fun it's just a fun funny memoir uh from an, an interesting personality and it made me break my don't talk to me on the plane Oh, you talked to somebody about it on the plane, huh? I did. I was reading it on the plane yesterday, and I was giggling, and then I realized that the person sitting next to me was also giggling, and I caught caught him reading Nick Offerman over my shoulder. Oh, there you go. It Wait, remind me that reminds of the title. We've we've buried the lead. What, <laughs> Paddle your own Paddle canoe. Paddle your own canoe, Nick Offerman. Yeah, it's great. Kinda he, like, it's kind of like a manly pants. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, manly <laughs> pants. Right. He could have called it manly pants. That'd have been funny. Uh, it's it's really enjoyable. And Nick Offerman narrates the audiobook oh. uh, here. So if you well, this are, is our, you tease this. This is what you were I, teasing is, before. Yeah, I I uh, I see what you're doing. If I bring the gun on stage, I'm going to shoot it by the third act. Gotta shoot it. Uh, so I would highly recommend uh, that you check that out. If this sounds like your thing, I sort of wish that I had waited and gotten the book on audiobook just because mm. listening to him read sections of it at the reading was really terrific and and so if you like uh like jeff's partner michelle are looking for a good audiobook i would go with paddle your own canoe or if you are going to take the print copy i wonder or, if she'd be interested we'll have to see what she we did a hard yeah. sell here so if you're going to we'll read see. this thing in public just be prepared to be the crazy person who's laughing at your book <laughs> in public but it's totally worth it uh, uh that was a long tease so yep. here's a short one the other one is called the reason i jump it's by naoki higashida but translated by david mitchell oh. who's, uh, who's an american uh, novelist known for Cloud Atlas and many other things, mm-hmm. but you likely rec- uh, recognize that name. The book actually came out several weeks ago, but David Mitchell was on The Daily Show this week, which is where I caught him and saw this book. It was originally written by a 13-year-old Japanese boy who has autism and uh, is a one-of-a-kind memoir into the the internal life uh, of this 13-year-old boy who has the social difficulties interacting with people that are common for folks on the autism spectrum, but he recognizes um, his emotional desires to connect and the frustration of not being able to do so, and he's able to articulate it in writing. And David Mitchell has a child who has autism, and he came across this, and he said just started sort of doing an illegal translation of it. for Because if you're David Mitchell, you just speak Japanese, and you can just do this. Well, so his wife is Japanese, and he has spent some time immersed in Japanese. He just downloaded the Japanese uh crap what's the language software <laughs> oh <laughs> rosetta stone yeah he just you know clicked himself into the rosetta stone in his brain and magically started oh, doing funny. it uh but once he started translating this for his wife and for their community uh, of friends that they have who also have children with autism his agent got wind of it and so he then began working with this person wow. and doing a, a full authorized translation the interview on the daily show was really fascinating and, and what david mitchell had to say about this memoir and about how it's really unique in the literature about aut- autism was fascinating as well um, i bought it immediately and i I was not alone because the book went from uh, being ranked number 465 on Amazon at the start of that interview to number one by the next mm. day. Uh, so nice to you, see did, the Daily Show be able to yeah. cause a bump like did that. Did you see if 
Did it say on the interview if Mitchell had met the kid? Did he ever go and meet him or? Oh, I don't, I don't think just, they did say curious. that. Or if uh, if he did say that, I missed that yeah, okay. part because I was so busy being like, oh my gosh, this sounds amazing. This is so interesting. What a story uh, yeah, to that. Yeah, really, really interesting. And uh, Maybe uh, David Mitchell's the most interesting man in the world. Oh, man. <laughs> he doesn't always do illegal yeah. translations of books. <laughs> but when I do, they become number one Amazon <laughs> bestsellers. I believe. I think this is plausible, and we have some admissible evidence. For yeah, it. I know. We, we, we'll keep a running list of the most interesting <laughs> literary people in the world. And those are the new books this week, and that is our show. That's our show. Um, as always, you can find me on Twitter at Reading Ape, you on Twitter at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y, Got a note for us, podcast at bookriot.com. We're especially interested this go-around in books for 8 to 12-year-olds that are super good for all kids, yep. right? That's what we're looking for. We are super interested in that. You can find the show notes for this show, uh, bookriot.com slash podcast. A lot of stats. That, I tell you what, that showrooming one has this huge, beautiful PDF. Get lost in it for days. You can check it out there. Uh, what else do we need to tell the folks? Uh, we still, we're still working on that short survey that you yes. can take. It will take you about two minutes. It has seven questions that will let you tell us a little bit about who you are, and it'll help us identify the best and most relevant sponsors for the show so we can keep bringing you stuff like, is everyone uh, having fun without me? No, no, me? hanging out. Hanging is out everyone without me. Hanging oh, my out gosh. Without me. Okay, is everyone hanging out without right. me by Mindy Kaling and Lungs Full of Noise by Tessa Mellis. And again, thanks to them for sponsoring the show. And if you're interested in those books, there are notes to those in the show notes as well and and that's our show i think next week if i've got my i've got it right i think we're gonna have nobel news Ooh. it's that time of year so if there's gonna be nobel news well, of course we'll cover it i think it'll be next week's show we should early next week hear about the nobel prize for literature um sometimes they're a little cagey and they don't always get to the, stick to the same schedule but it looks like uh, murakami's in the lead speaking of interesting nice people who translated the great gatsby into english from uh, into Japanese from English, speaking of most interesting people in the world. Maybe he and have, have Murakami and David Mitchell ever been spotted in the same room? Um, well, it was only during Lucho Libre, and they both had masks on, so we're not really sure uh, who was. Who. All right, and that's what we call gonna, a callback, and we're going to end the show. We're not going to do any better than that. Yeah, okay, we'll talk to you later. Rebecca. Have a great week, guys. <laughs> <laughs>